0: Welcome back to the Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. I'm your host, Nikki, from House of Faith and Freedom, and you can check us out online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. And today, we are here with Steve and, of course, our co-host, Hannah Fordyce, who is the founder of House of Faith and Freedom.
1: I'm so excited to be jumping into a conversation with Steve Johnson. Steve is the co-founder of Five Stone Media and the executive director of one of Five Stone Media's ministries that we're highlighting today, life support resources.
2: I think one thing that's important to note is that everybody grieves differently and everybody grieves for a different length of time. And even out of love, we want people to stop grieving because we see that they're in pain. But I think we need to honor those that are grieving.
1: Steve, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you for the invite.
1: Absolutely. So before we jump into our topic, talking about mental health and the church, I really want to hear a bit more about you and your personal faith journey, because it's an interesting one. Um, From my understanding, most of your background is actually in media production. So how did you get from working with companies like ESPN and Fox into starting five stone media, which does like prison ministries and mental health resources.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a journey. I was raised in a Christian house. My parents were, were wonderful parents. We were in church every time the doors were open. They hauled us along to church. And I have a very kind of independent spirit about me. It's the way I was created. So I think as soon as I turned 18, I wanted to check things out outside of that Christian environment. But that will play a very important part of my journey later. So I got into the media business. I started in the radio business right after high school. College wasn't for me. I had a learning disability and. So got into the radio business, and then eventually, ten years later, stumbled into the television business. I was working in radio in Atlanta, Georgia, and knew some guys that worked for Ted Turner and Turner Broadcasting down there. And uh, just as fate would have it, they invited me to come and play on their sports department softball team, they needed a player on a Tuesday night. And so I just got to know those guys and they were just starting their NBA contract there. And I said, how could I get involved? I mean, I like sports and, you know, TV's always been an interest to me. And so they said, come and see me. And I was basically hired the next day and, you know, to just do very menial labor. But I taught myself, I'd, I'd watched different, uh, different, disciplines in the television industry. And I would see producers, you know, kind of be project managers. And I go, well, that kind of fits my personality and what I like to do. So I stayed there for several years and then just worked my way up into a producer role. And then ESPN called and, and uh, I became a staff producer and got to travel around the world and get paid to go to sporting events. And it all sounds so glamorous. And at the same time, Uh, my wife and I, who's a Georgia girl, we we had four kids and we were raising four kids and I was traveling all over and we had an opportunity to move back to Minnesota in 2004. And so we did just because of family situation. And then in 06, I was invited to be on a, a planning team for a men's church conference in the Midwest. And Around a Saturday night campfire, there was a guy there named John Turnipseed and a group from an organization called Urban Ventures in Minneapolis. And John was asked to share a little bit of his story. And he stood up and he said, my name is John Turnipseed. I have 30 members of my family in prison, 10 for first degree murder. And I am the director of the Center for Fathering in Minneapolis at Urban Ventures. And so me, I'm very uh, curious about people. I just love hearing people's stories. And so my storytelling radar was peaked. And I went to John Turnipseed the next week and I go, you know, would you mind if I rounded up a couple of guys to tell a little bit of that story? Because that is fascinating how somebody could have a family that's as messed up as your family was. And how do you rise above that? That's what really interested me. And he said, okay. Okay. And so I found four colleagues and we formed a little tiny nonprofit called Five Stone Media back in 2007. And we were just going to do a video, uh, kind of a documentary on John and give it to John Turnipseed to go speak because he was a very articulate public speaker. Uh, And God had other plans for us. And so that one video turned into three films and, they sort of took on a life of their own, and they were translated into different languages and shown on different networks around the world. And we all kept our day jobs, and we were just a team of volunteers. And uh, and we didn't really know what, what God was going to do. But going back to my, my journey of me just kind of rebelling against my upbringing, that was really also a turning point for me, meeting John Turnipseed. And that was kind of you know, part of my road back into Christianity and, 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 and the faith. But anyway, so those three films, uh, you know, after different parts of John Turnipseed's life, we wanted to find out how did you really transform your life, John? So we developed a video series that he was the host of, and we found 11 other men to kind of share their stories like his. And we developed this curriculum called Lifeblood, which is, story-driven that we take into prisons and jails, not only in Minnesota, but in other places around the country. And and we work with men and women in prisons and jails. And, you know, topics are like, what does a real family look like? And, you know, I remember John Turnipseed telling me he never sat around a family dinner table until he was 40 years old, until he had his own family. And, you know, for me, it was just the opposite. And, so, family, you know what does influence look like? what what is what do second chances really look like? You know what's power? For women, it's identity. That's a big part of it. You know so we have we have these nine topics and all these different men and women talking that have been through what the uh, inmates and and those incarcerated have been through. So that's, I mean, that's the very short story of, of how Five Stone Media was formed. And so all through 2017, we were just volunteers. I mean, we just did this on the side. And then in 2018, we had a retired therapist come to us. So that story base, that idea of shared experiences, we found it really works in that, in that prison environment. She goes, do you think you could, Create something like that in the mental health world uh, because we, as therapists, you know, we have a message that we would like to take to the church, you know, the big C church, because they need help, you know, how, how to deal with mental health. And we said, yes, we can do that. I don't know any therapist, you know, and neither did my colleague. But she said, I'll bring you a team of therapists and I'll bring you her stories. And they just kept coming. We just started doing these interviews. And then COVID hit. So all of our prison work stopped because everything was locked down and we were locked out of prisons. So that's when we really started developing our mental health series. So we had already started collecting these stories. Uh my, my work colleague, Lee Bailey Sealer, you know, we said, Well, we're not going to go out of business. So let's let's build a website and call it Life Support Resources and start putting some of these stories on the website. So there you go. That's how it all started over a short period of just, uh, what, 12 years. It didn't happen overnight.
1: Your story echoes a lot of ministries and the fact that they tend to grow organically. You start out just with obedience. Like I feel like God is asking me to do this one thing or I feel inspired to do this one thing and I take that step of faith. And then it like you said it takes it takes a life of its own. It sort of goes where it's going to go because God's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish through it. And one of the things that I'm really fascinated about with life support resources, also with lifeblood, is that it is so story based. It is testimony based. And that's something we resonate a lot with. Uh, Our podcast has a a fair amount of survivor stories. And why do you think it is that stories are so powerful for people, that they can be such an impetus for awareness, but also for learning, also for understanding? Mm -hmm. Like, What uh, are some of the impacts that you've seen come out of people sharing about mental illness or loss or abuse or suicide of a loved one.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, starting, starting in the prison world, a lot of them are not good readers. So the idea of just hearing somebody share their story, it wasn't an academic series like they were sort of used to seeing coming in. So, and it wasn't us going in with a Bible study. It was just us going in, hitting play on a DVD player. And you still have to use DVD players in prisons because there's no internet. Um, and, and so you know they would start seeing themselves in those stories, okay? And I think that's what really resonates all across the board with story. I mean, I think there was a reason that Jesus probably shared all of his messages in story form. It's because that's how we're created. You know, we, we resonate with other people's experiences. And so, you know, it works in all fields. I mean, we also created a curriculum on sudden loss. So it's parents talking about the loss of a child or you know, the loss of an adult child to overdose or suicide. And the only people who understand what they're saying are people that are going through that right now, right? I can be a curriculum leader, but I don't have that experience. So I think that's why story works, and then also in God's infinite wisdom, as we were creating our life support resources, my brother is a pastor, and he was pastoring a church in Vancouver, British Columbia at the time, and his 21-year-old son was a victim of a homicide. And so I personally got to help walk them through that journey, but see how that trauma is far-reaching right to extended family and and it doesn't stop it goes through generations I mean it, it just blew me away like it just and that was that's now been nine years ago I think that that my nephew was killed but his siblings are still dealing with that and they will for the rest of their lives you know so I just kind of fell in love with, with the people that we were interviewing. And I mean, these are real discussions we were having. In my other television world, I meet a lot of fake people who have this facade on, uh, who don't let you get, you know, deep. And it's just a lot of meaningless discussions. And, and now it's just, I love sitting with a group of men and women in prison. Because there's no reason to not be authentic. I mean, they're, who are they going to fool? You know, um, right. I I can't get them out of prison. You know, and it's the same way in mental health too. So so story just uh, to answer your question, I mean, just seeing ourselves in other people's stories is what works.
1: One hundred percent. I uh, in uh, 2017, I lost my dad very suddenly in a house fire, and in like the same month, my husband and I had a the loss of a of a unborn child. And then we had his mom get diagnosed with terminal cancer. It was all like very, very close together. And like that kind of trauma, when you have those kinds of losses, they, like you said, they stick with you and it sticks with you for a really long time. Like you're going to be working through that grief. You're going to be working through that trauma for a long time. We say that all the time with abuse victims. I'm sure Nick, you could speak into this, but it's not Like the event is over and now you're done with it. And it's certainly not like society's prescribed idea of what grief should look like or what trauma should look like, where it's like, yeah, you should be able to move on with your life. It has these far reaching impacts, both personally, but also for all of the support systems around these individuals. And like you said, you know, we have to, as the church especially, start to have these authentic conversations that look at people as they are in the experiences that they're in, in the suffering that they're in, if we really want to authentically bring them the gospel. Yeah. We cannot expect that we can bring an airbrushed version of Jesus to people and that that's going to resonate with them. Mm-hmm. But when we come with our own hurts on display, when we're willing to be the first one to say like, yeah, you know, I take anxiety meds or I have had this experience or this loss or this whatever, and I'm willing to bring that rawness to you. I think people are more interested in that version.
2: Yeah. And, and the church is where we should be able to be authentic with each Mm -hmm. other. So one of the things, you know, we say we're trying to do now is start the conversation and eliminate the stigma around Mm -hmm. mental health. And it's a long process. um, Because a lot now we've, you know, to date we've interviewed about 150 trauma survivors Mm -hmm. and They've all said, you know, first of all, I've, I've never told my story to anybody else. If my story can help one person, I'm happy to share my story. But, yeah. you know, oftentimes my church hasn't accepted me. Okay. We've, we've heard many times where they've said, we've been told by a pastoral staff that we don't pray hard enough or we don't have enough faith. Okay. Right. And, and so because of that trauma survivors sit in isolation mm-hmm. in church and they don't know who to turn to because they haven't been given permission to turn to anybody, right, in the church. Now that's starting to change. I think COVID has been you know positive to the to the point of we're starting to recognize the need for mental health resources because I'm convinced everybody was affected to some degree you know, during the pandemic. So our therapists that we work with, there's about 15 that we work with. They've told us, look, therapists do a great job of, of doing the clinical work. Pastors do a great job of counseling on the spiritual side. But there's something in the middle that's missing. And now, is it up to us as the body of Christ to learn how to come alongside each other. And that's the space that we're trying to fill with life support resources. So we're not, we're not doing care groups. We're doing curriculums like caring for mental health, where, you know, we can learn what somebody that's struggling with mental health looks and sounds like. Okay. And telling us what they need as somebody who's going through that on video. So we can, then we can talk about it. So we can all learn how to come along each each other, which I think is where Jesus would like us to be.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there certainly is a huge need to bridge this gap. And I say that, I think, because, you know, when you've walked through so much trauma or loss, we know that nothing is wasted. In Christ, nothing is wasted. Yeah, have people that have gone through, you know, the fires and the the refinement and all of what happens within trauma because these are the people and we're we're talking about authenticity here as well i mean these are the people that have been so authentic with christ i mean they're on the floor with christ and 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 when they get up in the day or in the middle of the day and they're just trying to make it they do that on christ's strength so to have them isolated is just so sad, and it is such a gap. So, I mean, why do you think that within the church that there can be such a negative stigma in and around mental health issues?
2: I think it's I, uh, honestly, uh, and I'm not throwing churches under the bus, but I think it's been okay. bad theology. Yep. Yep. I think I think theology has been incorrect. I think that we don't we don't uh, want to hear we might go through some suffering ourselves, right? But we call it a theology of suffering. I mean, nobody suffered more than Jesus himself, right? I mean, he went through the worst suffering of anybody. And he said, we will do the same. I think churches don't want to, and again, I I, I love the church, right? I mean mm-hmm. the church is the hope of the world. But but starts with pastors, I think are afraid to be authentic themselves because we want our pastors to be the perfect example of a Christian. If they're gonna teach us about Christianity, well then they better be perfect. So to hear a pastor say, hey, listen, I struggle with mental health, like I'm depressed. We have found the pastors who do that from the platform opens things wide open with their congregation. That's the permission that they're looking for To say, if the pastor can struggle with that, I can struggle with that too, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um,
1: silence creates a really unhealthy culture. Like when you have a, a culture where you don't talk about mental health issues, you don't talk about trauma, you don't talk about grief. People are going to have a hard time coming forward and being the first person to bring that up. You might think your church is somewhere that would be like, yeah, people would feel comfortable talking about their mental health issues here. They would feel comfortable disclosing abuse here. But if it's not something that you're preaching about from the pulpit, if it's not something that you're being authentic about or that you've even addressed in any way, shape or form, yeah, they have no reason to come forward and think that you're going to be a safe place for yeah. them.
2: And there, You know, as a pastor, and again, my brother's a pastor, my father-in-law was a pastor. Um, there is a fine line about how much do I expose myself to my congregation. And I, I think there is a line. I, I don't think you lay all of your messes out for everybody to see. But some mental health struggles, my goodness. But what's, what's the first thing we do when we walk into church on Sunday? We say, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. I had a great week. I mean, cause we've, we've taught ourselves to say that. I mean, that's, that's how you're expected to behave in church is like, you've got everything all together. Mm-hmm. And so if man, if John over here is great, you know, then I can't tell him I'm not great. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where some of these resources that we've created, we, we just want people to start talking to each other about it. And, um, you know, Nikki, just to, to follow up with what you were saying about being on the floor and having nowhere else to go but Jesus. His promise in Romans eight twenty eight to use the worst things that have ever happened to us for his glory. That's real. I mean, because yeah. he promised that, he has to do that. Right. And we see that over and over and over again. To the extent where many of our survivors say, you know, I wish I didn't have to go through that, but so many great things have come out of that, Mm -hmm. not just for me, but for other people. So, you know, God has to keep that promise that he will use the worst day of our life for his glory.
1: This is a great segue, actually. Nikki and I were talking about this this week in a meeting. This Tension that we sort of live in, right? Of like the now and the not yet, the kingdom is here, but the kingdom's not entirely here. And like God has to keep these promises. And also, we live in a broken world where sometimes his promises don't come to fruition as quickly as we may like or in the way that perhaps we would like. And how, when you're going through these moments of injustice or moments of extreme suffering, How do you balance hope and also acknowledge the depths of suffering and sort of live in that uncomfortable tension? Because I think the church can struggle sometimes. And we as individuals, you know, realistically, all of us struggle with this too. But how do we come alongside people who are going through uh, that I'm on the floor moment and encourage them without like slapping them in the face with a platitude?
2: Yeah. I think you could read Job to start with, you know, Job's friends, the first seven days, they said nothing. They just came and sat in silence. And and then one of them opened their mouths and I think they ruined everything after that. But what I have heard from survivors is what they have appreciated the most is, is people who just come and they don't have to have any answers uh, because oftentimes we don't have any answers to what you're just talking about, Hannah. I mean, we're not God, so why why God allows you to go through this and me to go through this? We often don't know the answers to that, and we may never know the answers to that until we're on the other side. So how do we comfort each other? You know, I think the best way is to just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and love, whatever that means. And it might mean sacrificing. It might mean, you know, coming over and spending the night with people and just to do it. But what we've heard is what they've appreciated the most is people that just do things and and don't provide answers. Because if you're suffering, um, you don't necessarily want answers, right? If you're in the middle of that, you don't want answers, yeah, you know that's the truth.
0: Um, and I think there's something interesting about what you're saying in and around grief. And I think that uh, it's easy, like if someone is on the floor, oftentimes that's that's out of grief. and that's even a god-given, appropriate response to whatever it is that has happened, the kind of trauma that they're that they're dealing with and i think silence is i mean lovely in that in that sense and appropriate in a in a response because grief is not bad there is much hope in grief grief is good and i think it can be easy to see grief as hmm, you know maybe a a lack of connection to jesus or i'm not clinging to hope enough. I mean, there is much hope in grief. It was funny. I, I do some painting and I, I love to take scripture and paint from scripture and to study it and, and what pours out of that. Well, in my own series of, of trauma a few years ago, like right in the thick of it, right in the thick of that suffering, I created this piece of this dove taking off and there's all this debris around it and it is a, it's a painting of hope. And it's, it's quite, mm, for lack of a better term, a, aggressive in the words hope. And I remember painting that, like I said, in the thick of grief. Yeah. And now as I look back on that piece, I go, oh, wow, that was Christ in me. Because there's no way on my own I could have produced that kind of an image of hope. But we have Christ and we have Christ on the floor and it can be part of the process. And why not as the body then tap into those who have wrestled in this way because they have so much to offer? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I
1: think of even like when you were saying that, like God is on the floor with you. Jesus is on the floor with you. And when I look at Jesus throughout scripture over and over and over again, we see him grieving with people and we also see him wanting people to grieve with him, right? We see him with Lazarus's death, weeping, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in like five minutes, but he still took the time to weep that loss. You know, even though we know that there's eternal hope coming, it still hurts to have loss here, to have suffering here. And then we see him in the garden right before he's going to be crucified and he asks, his three closest friends to come and just wait with me, just wait with me, you know, like we have, I think in our culture, sometimes in our uh, desire to get past the discomfort that is people's suffering, that is people's grief, that is people's messiness, we have a tendency to want to gloss over it, like we just want them to be okay. And so we sort of rush them through that process Yeah. instead of being like, yeah, grief is a real thing. And like you said, Nikki, it's not a sinful response. It's an appropriate response. God still grieves with us. He still grieves over injustice. He still grieves over loss and death because those things were never a part of his original intention for the world and for you. You know, He can bring beauty out of it. He can bring hope out of it. He can bring that dove out of it. And also it doesn't diminish the fact that you went through something that was impossibly hard And I wish we could find a way as the big C church to really embrace that. And the thing I keep thinking during this conversation is the incredible irony that I keep thinking, like, I wish the church could be more like the prison where we could just stop putting on an act and be vulnerable because we've got nothing to hide because all of us are in the same boat. and. If we could really be honest like that, you know, not like you said, not diminishing uh, the line, Steve, I think, especially when we're talking leadership or we're talking appropriate boundaries, those things are all realities. But if we could become a more authentic people, I wonder how that would impact the gospel coming out of our of our walls out of the big Sea church. Like, How would it multiply if we could all be really honest about our testimonies and really honest about the brokenness that we're going through?
2: I think if if you've if you found a church that welcomed people's messes, I think people would flock to that church. There would be something very inviting, yeah, I mean it, it would be just like us in prison. I mean, there's no place I'd rather be than spend those two hours with the men or women again, having these very uncomfortable conversations, you know, but But there's a deep love that comes out of that, too. And that's what we're all afraid to do. All right. So nobody wants to let people peek into our deepest. uh, And I get that. You know, But I want to go back to grieving just real quick here, because I think one thing that's important to note is that everybody grieves differently and everybody grieves for a different length of time and even out of love. We want people to stop grieving because we see that they're in pain. But I think uh, I think we need to honor those that are grieving. We need to let people grieve because that's a very important process. And, and we tend to not want them to do that very long because it's uncomfortable to be with them when somebody's grieving. But sometimes it takes years, you know, for somebody to grieve something.
1: Um, and I also think it's... I don't even know that it's a like you do it for a certain amount of time and then you're done. I feel like it's something that uh, pops up again randomly. Someone gave me this illustration. I genuinely cannot remember where it's from, so I apologize for that. But it was the idea of grief being sort of like a, a box that has a button in it that's like a grief or a pain button. And then there's this ball bouncing around inside that box. And when you first lose something or you're first grieving a relationship or a person or a lost dream or whatever it is, uh, that ball is as big as the box. So it's just constantly pressing on the button. And as you're uh, moving further out from that loss, the box begins to grow. Your life starts to grow again. It starts to get bigger. More things, more space starts being built in. But this ball is still bouncing around in there. And every time it hits the button, it hurts just as bad as it did the first time but Mm. it hits it less frequently.
2: yeah. And
1: I've certainly found that to be true in my process of grieving of like, there will be these moments where something really, really random, like a certain pizza or something will be like, oh my gosh, I just got hit with a wave of grief about my dad. And it'll hurt as bad as it did the day I lost him. But it's not the same as it was in those early years where it was constant, that's just constant loss. And so I think too, for us to be, us being the big C church, us being uh, friends, family members, supporters, to learn to let victims, to let survivors, to let grievers really guide the conversation and to just have a willingness to go where they lead, you know, to have a willingness to grieve or mourn with them again, if that's what they need to do and to leave that door open and also not to push them to grieve at moments they're maybe not ready to talk about it or they still feel like they, you know, maybe are doing better in this moment and they just need something to be fun or distracting or whatever. Like allow them to have the freedom to talk about it or to not talk about it, to grieve in it or to not grieve in it, to be really positive or to be really negative. Like whatever that is that they're needing at that moment, how can we just be this supportive net that comes around and is willing to sit with them in those moments, whatever they might look like.
2: Yeah, and that's what we're trying to create. I mean, here's an example. Um, this conversation we're having right now, Nikki, you and I never met before this conversation. Hannah, we've met once or twice, uh, but I feel because we're talking about something below the surface that now I've made two really close friends here in the last 45 minutes just because we're talking about something deeper than the weather or sports or, you know, whatever else, Right. I mean, we've gone below that surface, and and to me that's exciting. I mean, I I just I love doing that with people. So, our life support resources. You know, if you don't mind, can I go into that just for a little bit about what we've created? So we have this website, and by the way, all of our resources are free. We just give our resources away, and we trust God for the finances, and He has honored that we're still here is what I tell people, you know, he may not honor that a year from now, but he has so far, but you can log on to life Lifesupportresources.org. life All you have to do is register again. It's free and you can have access to all of the videos. Like we have, we have, if you have a friend that's going through depression and, you want to say, "Hey, uh, let's let's watch a story of somebody that's kind of going through what you're going through." You can find that on the website. Okay, all kinds of different areas of trauma you can find, and then we have these uh, video curriculums, and we just recently rolled out one called "Caring for Mental Health." It's ten part series. And again, it's not a care group. It's for all of us to learn about what that looks like and how to better come alongside each other. So we train facilitators, which is what we've been in the process of doing now. So we've trained about 100 facilitators. So if anybody's interested in having their church, you know, we'll come to your church. We have a virtual version we would love to do that. They can reach out to us and, and we can start that conversation. And then we also, uh, we have a devotional. It's called God is Always With You, 31 Days of Hope and Healing for Grief and Loss. So it's a collection of our stories and it's about grief. It's people that have been through that. And it's commentary from mental health professionals and our clergy. Uh, and, and if you go, our other website is fivestonemedia.com. Just spell it out and you can find that devotional there so our video resources we offer for free that devotional because we work with a publisher that does uh, cost a little bit but so that's that's how you can find us and we would love to start having conversations with people and 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 grow this you know we we're working with about 40 43 churches right now i think
0: wow so what is, um, if you don't mind me asking, what, what would connection with a church look like for Five Stone Media?
2: Well, um, there's one, one large church in the Twin Cities that has taken caring for mental health and made it a Sunday school class and also has made it available for their Stevens Ministry. Another church brought all of their staff together and said, we want to be trained in caring for mental health so we can learn how to care for mental health in our church. So we went, and I think there were 30 members. And it's lay leaders, it's not, just, it's not just the paid staff. We want lay leaders to be involved here. We want lay leaders to start small groups. And, um, you know, so it's a little bit different. Now we have a training coming up in St. Cloud, Minnesota area, where there's multiple churches that are involved with that. You know? So uh, it's a little bit different, and, and we're still learning, too, because just 2022 is when we rolled out our mental health curriculum. And then we just, uh, in the last month, our latest curriculum is, is called Exploring Your Recovery. So it's the mental health aspect of addiction recovery, which is generally not talked about much in traditional recovery programs. So we just let God lead us wherever He wants to lead us, and it's been some pretty remarkable places so far.
0: Yeah, that sounds very powerful. In the Lord, five loaves and two fish. Here we go. Yeah. He does with that, with such a great need.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, when you hear mental health statistics, like a study that 83% of pastor spouses want their spouse to quit. Because of the enormous burden of mental health right now, not only in in the world but in Christianity, yeah. so uh, that's why I want the body to say, "Hey, let's let's figure this out together and take the heavy lifting off our pastoral staff." So right. what's you know what's left? It's us as Christians loving each other.
1: Absolutely, it's us stepping up as the body of Christ yeah. and that's what it's all about. It's about getting on the floor with people and living life with them. And uh, I just applaud everything that you guys are doing at five stone media and the ways that you are encouraging and helping the church to step into this gap and to really be authentic in the way that we're engaging with one another. This is something that every single person can engage with. I mean, I have watched quite a few of the videos on your website. Again, they're free folks. So there is no reason for you not to go on there and take the time to really listen to people's experiences, to their authentic stories. And then to bring that back to your congregation, your community, and really start that conversation because that's where culture change starts. It starts in our conversations and the way that we're engaging with one another and being authentic. Yeah. yeah, it's I, it can be wildly powerful. And I would say don't diminish the power of your testimony, your personal story, your personal suffering, mm-hmm. and also the power of sharing other people's stories.
2: Yeah. Things like what you two are doing, I think is fabulous, right? So you're stepping into this space. More and more people are starting to do that and not being afraid uh, to open up and, and let people see, you know, some ugliness there um, it's really important. It's all I can say.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Any
0: last thoughts, Nikki? No, I just so value what has been spoken here and, and trust that it falls on ears that are ready.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it won't fall on every year. Right. But mm-hmm. God has prepared hearts for these messages.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I believe he's telling the fields of people's hearts and and when they hear the right story, it's going to be just like you and John Turnipseed. Right. Like, it starts in the campfire stories, it starts in the conversations, and and that's what begins revivals, that's what begins revolutions, that's what pre- begins culture change, you know, that's the driving force behind those things, is conversation, is awareness, is personal experience.
2: Yeah.
1: Any uh, final thoughts yeah, from yeah. you?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I mean we're, we're a bunch of old people now, all right? So we're trying to bring your generation into this. So, um, you know, we, we're looking for workers, too, uh, to work with us, to uh, help engage churches. So if your church is interested, if you know people who would be interested in working with us a little bit, We're going to keep going until God says stop, but uh, I would love to find, you know, the next generation to come in behind us and carry this work on.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we love your shepherd's heart and your leadership. This is true leadership.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. It was really nice to meet you, Nikki, and Mm -hmm. to talk to you again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I will link all of the information for five stone media for life support resources, as well as for lifeblood. And uh, one of the things I actually want to highlight because I've used it quite a few different times in my ministry is that you guys actually have a directory of Christian mental health professionals and therapists that's on your website as well. And that is so necessary. That resource I've handed it off to, I can't even tell you how many churches in Minnesota. Um, So thank you for putting that out. And I will directly link that as well, because I think it's just incredibly helpful if you're located in Minnesota. Well, thank Um, you
2: for that, because we didn't have that. And and so my colleague Lee said, you know, I I think it might be helpful if we could just list some mental health professionals. And that actually has been probably the most responded to thing that we've done. Uh, And we have vetted, you know, the best we can, all of these as Christian mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and
1: it's just so helpful because I think a, a, a lot of churches, I I don't know that you always prepare for things in advance. You sort of scramble for them when the situation comes up. Yeah, And we've certainly seen that in regards to abuse as far as like pastors don't have a tendency, church leaders don't have a tendency to really think about domestic violence until they're in a situation where they have a congregation member who's Mm -hmm. dealing with it right at that moment. And so that lack of preparation can result in like a scrabbling for resources and trying to figure out what the next step is, which is where trainings can be really helpful and resources like this, where you can say, okay, we recognize as a church, we have a specific spot. You even said this earlier, Steve, actually, and it was great. Uh, You know, the church has this incredible irreplaceable role in supporting people long-term and being a community around them. And pastors have a great place in spiritual care and counseling. And also there are elements, clinical elements, that sometimes the church isn't the best fit for. And we need to know where we can refer then. We need to know where we can partner, who can we pass on to, who is going to be an expert in that field. And resources like what Life Support puts out allow churches to do that effectively, allow them to be a little bit more prepared in the way that they might be engaging in their community and where they might be referring to.
2: Yeah yeah well thank you for for spreading the word. I appreciate that
1: mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for chatting with us today and having this conversation around mental health and grief and loss and addiction and trauma and, and all the things because we need about a thousand more conversations like this yeah, happening I agree. inside your yeah. sphere. You've been listening to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart. This podcast is a production of House of Faith and Freedom with your hosts, Hannah and Nikki. For more information about intimate partner violence training for the church, you can check out our website at houseoffaithandfreedom.org.